As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Soccer Show's Euro 2020 coverage. Two of the biggest teams in the tournament are out. It was Control-Alt-Delict for the Netherlands who found out that beating the Czech Republic at the Euros isn't for everybody. It requires a certain skill level. You know, the kind England possess that maybe, I don't know, Scotland don't. And in Seville, Hazard's skill made up for a game that mostly lacked thrills as Belgium sent Portugal packing. Even some classic Pepe poop housing couldn't save it for the defending champions. Joining me today, my name's Ryan Bailey, by the way. I've got a man who's had the same amount of shots on target as the Netherlands did against the Czechs, it's Taylor Rockwell. Equally effective, baby. And I also appreciate, Ryan, in terms of effectiveness, you once again forgetting to introduce yourself until the very last moment. I write out these intricate intros and then I always forget to include my actual name in them, which maybe speaks to my lack of ego or massive ego. I'm not sure which way that goes, Taylor. I have thoughts. I have thoughts on which one it is. We'll get to those off air. Also here is a man who has a lot more ideas than Portugal had against Belgium, Graham Ruthman. Um, I think that's overselling me, to be honest, right? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But thank you. I appreciate it. That's the nicest thing you've ever said about me. Oh, my gosh. I've got to raise the bar of nice things I say about you, Graham. Then. Thank you. I'll work on that. <laughs> and we also have a man you who insulted us- him in the introduction. I just want to point that out. You insulted Scotland once again in the introduction. Well, Graham isn't Scotland. That's just the place he was unfortunate <laughs> enough to be born in. That's all. And your second one. <laughs> well, let's get to my third introduction. It's a man who has scored as many direct free kicks this summer as every single Euro 2020 player combined. It's Joe Lowry. Yes, it is I, the free kick specialist. I am very good at taking set pieces or just as good as all these players, apparently. Joe, do you find it peculiar that at this stage in the tournament, we haven't had a direct free kick goal yet? Seems quite odd. Yeah, just set pieces in general, I think have, I'd have to go back through the numbers on that or hope that someone's posted them, but I thought set pieces were going to be a much bigger part of this tournament than they've turned out to be. And I think it's, that's quite strange, honestly. Yeah. Just need Kieran Trippier to line one up against Germany. Oh, I've already averted to talk about England already on a non-England match day. I know how Graham feels about talking about England on non-England match day, so I'll cut that out. Uh, we had the 39th and 40th games of the tournament, Taylor. Do you feel like you've watched 40 games in the past two weeks? I think I've only watched like 37 games, uh, so at least huh. there's that. Uh, I, I sort of do in the sense that like a lot of the games are blending together, which is why when I flip back through my notes, it's occasionally hard to remember like, oh yeah, that happened. I forgot about that. That happened two years ago. No, it was a week ago. Good stuff. Uh, but I also like this part of the tournament because we start to be able to pick out sort of patterns and there is that familiarity building that like we can talk about teams, if not in shorthand, then at least have a decent understanding of what we 
are going to expect what we think is going to happen in that game. And then I think as long as we expect not much to happen, we were kind of right on the day. Uh, kind of. Well, why don't we start the, on that spirit, Taylor, with the Netherlands against the Czech Republic in Budapest uh, earlier today, today being Sunday. Uh, it was 2-0 to the Czech Republic, an unexpected result for many this one. The first big team of the tournament out in kind of, Graham, what I might describe as a self-destruction of sorts here. Um, the first time since 1980, says Otto Johan, that uh, in, when tournaments first start started being analysed that the Netherlands have failed to score, uh, excuse me, failed to record a single shot on target in a tournament game. Graham, your brief summary to start off with of what went wrong here for the Netherlands. Well, I think a lot went uh, wrong, particularly in the, in the second half, which we'll probably get to, to later on. But in terms of the, the way that they were set up, I actually thought... To begin with, that the the Czech centre backs in particular looked quite quite vulnerable. It seemed like Memphis and Daniel Malin, who started this game, and and Denzel uh, Dumfries were going to get in behind a lot, which is obviously key to the to their game plan. And then after that that initial period, it, there was just none, no more of that from from the Netherlands. And one of the things I I thought that they were doing um, wrong, I guess, was that they, they seemed to be starting. To, they, they were playing their final pass to get in behind. It's almost as if they had such success in the first 10, 15 minutes in getting in behind, and I did think they looked dangerous early on, that they were over-eager to play that ball and uh, that final pass in behind. And, and it felt like they were playing it from from too deep, and it, all, it almost felt like to me they needed to play one more pass into the midfield for then the final ball to be released in behind, because they did have players, as I mentioned, the three I picked out there, Malin, Memphis and Dumfries. They had players who are... Very good at that, um, but it, it it just it didn't work. Uh, Daily Blind played the the most forward passes in the first half for the Netherlands, uh, twenty nine, which kind of illustrates, given that he's a you know a central defender or part of that central defensive unit, it just illustrated just how bad they they were at, at playing through the the Czech Republic. Um, I thought the Czech Republic were really wise to this this ploy that the Netherlands have used really well throughout the tournament, where they play a diagonal ball up to Denzel Dumfries. Dumfries doesn't always win it, but the Netherlands then pick off the second ball, and we saw that them, them use that to great effect in the group stages, but it felt like the Czech Republic were rushing bodies in there to pick up the second ball, and, and really, it just felt like a lack of intelligence from the Netherlands. They didn't change things up at all. It never really felt like they were trying anything different, and then, of course, everything falls apart with the red card in the second half. It did indeed. Yes, certainly things changed at that point with uh, Matthias Delic getting the red card for deliberate handball in around the 50-something minute, uh, says my notes. Um, Graham, you mentioned there sort of the the transition of the ball from the defence to the midfield there, which is a, a decent point. But I also thought that it was the, the progression from the midfield onwards as well. They weren't great at getting the ball into the final third as well. And there was a lot of a lot of Stecklenburg trying to hoof it into the final third at points certainly as well. Would you agree with that too? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Ginny Wijnaldum had, uh, I thought, his easily his worst game of the tournament so far. I thought he'd had a, an excellent tournament so far. I'm looking through my notes because I did write down, yes, he completed eight passes in the whole match, Ginny Wijnaldum, which what? for a player in central midfield is astonishing. Yeah, completed. Wow. He, he attempted a lot more, but only completed eight, which That's not good. Uh, is insane <laughs> which is, 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 is i think that must that must be um forward passes surely i mean eight passes in the whole match surely but yeah basically yeah. i'm trying to say that he illustrated i'm trying to illustrate that he had very little impact on the game and at points i actually forgot he was playing so that that probably speaks to what you're saying ryan that they mm. weren't just struggling to get the ball into midfield when they did get it into midfield they were doing very little with it taylor do you think that maybe speaks to the system that the ball was using? A system where, in general, where your right wing back is the star player. Does that suggest you're on the right track, maybe? I don't know. Uh, no, I think, I think basically, I think that, that the, uh, the Czech Republic got their entire game plan pretty spot on in this one. And I think it required a manager who could change it up on the fly for the Netherlands if they wanted to get back into this. And I, and I don't think that is, uh, Frank de Boer's strong suit. But I talked about it in the preview yesterday about how, can you limit, if you're the Czech Republic, can you limit what Frankie de Jong wants to do when he gets the ball? They want to spread the, the field as much as they can so he can receive the ball, uh, and then he can turn and play forward. He can find Wijnaldum, or he can sp- spread it wide. And I think the Czechs did such a really good job of sitting on him, sitting on Daron, that then it did force them to try to use those wingbacks. And that's where I think there was that over-reliance, because once 
they recognized the Dutch that the long ball wasn't going to be as effective. And I think that's what they were going for in the opening moments. And I think there Mm. were chances there. That's where that game did feel a bit like it was going to be more back and forth. But as those opportunities became less and less frequent or less and less obvious, but they still couldn't play through, then they do have to try to transition wide. And that's where those wingbacks do become important. But I think as Graham has already said, if you're the Czech Republic and you have a contingency for how to deal with that and how to get numbers over quickly to limit the effectiveness of that attack, you really are stymieing the Dutch across the board. And that's where it goes back to you've got to have that next plan, that next level performance or some other idea to get you through. And the Dutch didn't, the Czechs did, and here we are. By the way, I just checked that Wijnaldum stat, and it is correct. It's total passes. I, can't, I know I wrote it down in my, no, my own notes, but I can't quite believe that. He completed <laughs> eight passes in the whole match. That's incredible. I, I, I think uh, Fatmab Graham has, has you completely in the wrong. They would say he had 10 passes, which oh, is right, okay. different, <laughs> but not really. No, no. I mean, that's not much better, is it? <laughs> no, yeah. it's not. No, it's not. It's not. Um, Joe, Frank de Boer's twin brother, uh, Ronald, uh, said recently, worse to the effect of, Johan Cruyff will be turning in his grave if he saw the Dutch <laughs> formation. Uh, that's, that's quite literally what he said. What, what do you make of the way Frank de Boer set up in this tournament? Maybe how ineffective it was today. Would it have been better with a, you know, a, 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 a more Cruyffian setup? Oh, that's an incredible quote. I didn't, I'd never heard that before, and I'm really hoping that that's real. And, and, and then that nothing, got, that nothing got lost in translation because that is absolute gold. I have no issue <laughs> with how Frank DeBoer set this team up in this tournament. I, I think we make far too much of, oh, I think we make far too much out of the difference between a three at the back and a four at the back. It's, formations are so fluid, and the way the Dutch play is very fluid, and it is Cruyffian in that way at least. So, yeah, they've played this three at the back shape in this tournament, but it, it has been very fluid in possession. I think it's been very good in possession leading up to this game. They had Depay playing off of Veghorst and then Wijnaldum pushing up and, and forming kind of a front three with this all action midfield b- beneath them with Frankie de Jong and Martin de Run. And there have been little issues there. De Run dropping back too deep early on in this tournament and just needlessly picking up the ball from the center back. So they already had a numerical advantage in the back. And there have been issues. I'm not trying to say that there haven't defensively as well we've talked about some of those things but they've been capable of creating attacking chances they've manufactured goal scoring opportunities up to this point in the tournament and I, I think we have to give Frank DeBoer credit for that in this game though Taylor talked about how DeBoer didn't really make any adjustments and the Dutch needed someone who was going to tweak things in this game and I totally agree with that because of how the Czech Republic defended they were man marking in midfield so they had Barak stepping to Darun and they had Suchek stepping forward to Frankie de Jong and then they had even Holes on Wijnaldum at times as he would drop but the Netherlands were just far too content to bypass midfield and look for the runners in behind that Graham already mentioned to look for Dumfries to look for Depay and to look for Malin and they became one-dimensional very, very quickly. I think they would have been better off dropping even another player, pulling another center back out. Maybe Depay drops in more often than he did. Maybe Malin drops in, even though I know that's not necessarily his game. There was an opportunity to be more aggressive with their off-ball movement, not just to go forward, but also to pull defenders out and, and back towards the ball, then to create more opportunities to break through the Czech Republic's man-marking system. We didn't really see that, and that, for me, is the biggest tactical issue that we saw from Frank de Boer in the Netherlands in this game, not specifically his system or his positioning or any of that stuff, but the lack of adjustments and the, the inability to break this man-marking setup from the Czech Republic. And while we're on the Frank de Boer topic, I would also say that like it is sort of harsh because much has been made of the, the chance for Daniel Malin, then they go back the other way, and it's the red card and the game kind of turns on its head. And that's mm. certainly not Frank DeBoer's fault. But I think it's there that you, in my opinion, in my perspective, you want a manager who can sort of pick that team up. Because lest we forget, Matthias Delict is 21 years old. And that is older than some other players in this tournament. But it's still very, very young. And I think that that youth explains sort of the the instinctual, oh no, I've made a mistake, uh, knock the ball away with my hand. Like, I think we see that sometimes in those moments of panic. And that's an individual moment, but I, I really do believe it bleeds into the team if you don't sort of make those proactive changes and then lead from that sideline and pick the team back up. And from everything I understand from Frank DeBoer, especially with Atlanta United, 
that's not really his style. He's not a verbal coach. He's not going to be there screaming encouragement and screaming instruction. He is a more of a figure it out. You are the individual. You are a professional. I have put you into this situation. Here are your tactics. This is what I would like you to do. But I don't think that plays as well when you have to adapt on the fly, and that's what was required in this game, and that's where I think you do want that manager who can pick you up and kind of push you on, encourage you to make something happen, or at least have that sort of fatherly strong connection if you're uh, Santos with Portugal, and that didn't even work today. But I think aside from that, you need that sort of veteran ability there, and I don't think they had it, and I think that's a big reason why they're going home. I also think he makes a, a, a mistake with the personnel change, though, as well, after the red card. I mean, the, the, the decision to put um, yeah. Quincy Promise on at left back, at left wing back, means that Van, Van, Alho, Van Anholt, sorry, Van Anholt, can't say that, gets shifted into the left centre back position, and then Daly Blind into the centre centre back position, which is not a, a central defensive unit that strikes me as, as particularly solid from set pieces. And so it's then not a surprise then against that against a team who have uh, have proved themselves as a little bit of a. You're right, there haven't been many uh, good set piece teams at this tournament, but Czech Republic have probably been one of them. Um, and so it's not a surprise that then Holland struggled to defend set pieces with that back line and with Matthias to lift off the pitch. And I know it's not wow. easy to to um, to replace De Ligt. You know, he's a he's a high quality elite level centre back, but just having Blind and Van Anhol as, as, as defending set pieces didn't seem like a good idea to me. Graham, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's such a really good point because it's not just that sort of potential vulnerability there, but it's also that prior to the red card, it had been Daily Blint stepping stepping out either stepping wide to give them an outlet or moving into the middle the way we saw Andreas Christensen do with Denmark to be almost another sort of pivot that allows the midfield to move that, that much further up the field. And just if you're moving him then from that role to the center back role, it requires somebody else to do that, or maybe you're not going to do that anymore, but you're you're sort of changing multiple parts where you easily could have just brought on an, another defender, kept Daly Blint doing that thing, and he doesn't then have to change as well as somebody else has to come in and they have to change and then there's a bunch of changes across the field. That's really interesting and I think is a very, very good point as to where things started to go wrong. Well, the first goal with the corner letting the uh, Czechs get two headers off in the six-yard box is a pretty good example of how the defense let them down at that point. Yes, that's that's a very good uh, indication of that. Um, Graham, is it possible that this team, this Dutch team all along sort of flattered to deceive? When you look at, you know, they came through the group very well with Austria, Ukraine and North Macedonia. But is it possible maybe that group flattered them a bit and they ultimately have, have exited at the point they deserve? Yeah, I think that's a conclusion um, that I've drawn from the, from this performance. I know things went against them, but coming into this tournament, I didn't expect much at all from the, from the Netherlands. They were my team that I put down in my predictions as, as my predicted flop of the tournament. So I was actually a little surprised at how easily they did manage to get out of that group. And then maybe we get a little bit high on that and I started to change my um, my impression of this team, my perception of this team, when actually I, I probably shouldn't have done this and I, and I, we probably all had it right before the tournament started. Um, so I think this was just, I think this was a measure of where this Dutch team is at the moment. And, and, it's, a, and it's a real shame because if had this, had this tournament been played a year ago, I actually would have had them among the front runners. They had real momentum. They'd done well in the Nations League. Obviously, Van Dyke was fit and Ronald Koeman seemed to be getting more out of this, this group of players. So things, things spiraled for them very quickly over the course of a year and also in this match, which kind of reflected that. And Joe, a little note on the Czechs as well. Um, a pretty deserved win for them, we can say. You know, they did ultimately create the better chances here, probably. Uh, looked very disciplined. Definitely made the most of having the extra man. Uh, belief for them? Yeah, absolutely. This team, man, I have this love-hate relationship with the Czech Republic. I imagine Graham's relationship is just a hate-hate with the Czech Republic. But, yes, but for me, I, I have, <laughs> I don't, I don't really enjoy watching this team play soccer. But man, they are really good at just mucking things up, right? They'll just go around and, and they play like this Bundesliga mid-table team, right? Where they just go around and they, they press a little bit and they man mark in certain situations and they trap you against the sideline. They win the ball, they attack in transition, and then they repeat that cycle. And I, I thought they continue in this game to do a lot of those things quite well. And honestly, when, when the Netherlands went down to 10 men, I thought they were going to be in a little bit of trouble, the Czech Republic, because yes, they have a man advantage, 
But when you go down a man, your natural inclination, if you're the Netherlands, is to sit deeper. And that's exactly what happened. I thought the Czech Republic might have some real issues breaking through a 4-4-1 block for the Netherlands, or, or at times it looked like a 5 at the back, or whatever the, the shape was for the Netherlands. I thought they were going to have some issues breaking down the Dutch, and, and they kind of did, but they still got the goal on the set piece. They get that opening goal outside of open play, and that's huge for them, and then they get the second one off of a long ball, then they win the second ball after the Netherlands look way too tired or, or really lacking discipline in their positioning, and they get the second goal to ice this thing, and I, I just think this is a very, very strong performance from the Czech Republic, even when I thought that red card might actually sort of counterintuitively work against them. Well, there we have it. The Czechs are through. They're going to face Denmark in Baku next Saturday. One of the Czech Republic and Denmark in the semifinals of Euro 2020 uh, at Wembley Stadium on the 7th. What a world we live in. We'll be back right after these messages to talk about Belgium against Portugal. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. Let's talk Belgium against Portugal. This one finishing 1-0 to the Belgians in Seville. This was the highest level fixture of the tournament by FIFA rankings, which I do love. First versus fifth in this one. The defending champions are officially out. Belgium will be playing Italy in Munich on Friday night. That sounds like an absolute cracker. Joe, let's start with your thoughts on the Belgians here. They had two days more rest than the Portuguese here. Uh, Do you think that showed maybe? What did you think of them? Uh, I didn't think it showed really at all. I thought, man, I don't think Belgium was especially good in this game, specifically with the ball, because I think they defended well enough at the end, and, and there's something to be said for staying compact and defending and seeing out a result. I think that's, you know, that's noble. But the way they approached this game in possession, I thought we'd kind of seen this whole thing before from them earlier on in this tournament. Yes, they'd scored goals in the group stage, but I, I don't think I really ever thought that in possession, not in attacking transition, mind you, but in possession, that this team was particularly strong. And I think we saw their weakness in that phase of play again today. The first half just had a lot of stale possession for both teams. Belgium were in this 3-4-3. They had Eden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne underneath Lukaku. And then when they defended, De Bruyne would step up as the nine and Lukaku would shift wide. But really, no matter who was where and no matter where the ball was on the field for Belgium, they were slow to circulate the ball and they were hesitant to make runs in behind. You know, Thorgan Hazard and, and Thomas Munier would make runs out wide from their wingback positions. But centrally, it was a lot of coming to the ball and no one actually stretching Portugal vertically. So De Bruyne would drop and Hazard would drop and Lukaku even would drop to help Belgium break out. But it didn't, it didn't really amount to anything. They had a bunch of slow passes and they really weren't moving a whole lot off the ball. And to be honest, I think they're, they're rescued by Thorgan Hazard's beautiful goal. It's a phenomenal strike from outside the box. It is a, a wonderful shot that moves and it's, it's great. It's a great sequence. It's a great goal. But I was, I was pretty uninspired by Belgium in this game because then in the second half, they can just sit deep and absorb pressure. And that was the theme for the entire second 45. I'm inclined to agree, Joe. And Taylor, I think one of the things I noticed the most about Belgium is there was quite a lot of cheap giveaways, um, particularly in defense. Uh, and they seemed to get away with a lot of them. They weren't as in control as I expected, Taylor. 
Yeah, but I also think there was a Portugal team there that didn't really take advantage of those mistakes. And so Mm -hmm. it ended up being, I think that's a big reason why this game in my mind was pretty ugly, was just because you had two teams, I think, that were aware of the stakes and were sort of up for the pressure of the moment, but also, I think, set up to negate what the other was trying to do. And sometimes you'll get when that happens of like, oh, they balanced this and they've added this and they've adjusted to that. And so everything is kind of canceled out. Now what happens Sometimes you'll get a next level adjustment or you'll get one team just throwing caution to the wind and committing numbers. And other times you'll get both teams sort of content to just keep trying the same thing and see what happens. And that really only changes once Portugal have to make changes when they do start making some more attack minded uh, additions in like the 58th minute or so. But prior to that, it just seemed like both teams were okay to give up possession, okay to maybe not complete the passes or keep that possession, but then simultaneously not fully take advantage of those opportunities. And I think a huge part of that is because they both set up, again, pretty soundly defensively. I thought Portugal in their 4-3-3, but then with Renato Sanchez and Gian Moutinho sort of being the ones to step out. If anybody else did, it ended up being much more of a, like, from front to back, one, two, three, four, with Ronaldo at the kind of tip, and then you have the two stepping out, then you've got the kind of three wider ones, and then the back four. You're basically literally funneling Belgium wide, and Belgium, I think, were kind of okay with that, kind of content with that, as long as they didn't get exposed, but it just ended up in this very cagey game, and then a very physical game in the second half, with a moment of brilliance being the sort of separation between the two. Yeah, Graham, I think when we were chatting on our WhatsApp group during the first half, we were kind of inferring the game wasn't entirely holding our attention, but it did kind of change up after uh, Thorgan Hazard's excellent goal. And it became, well, the ESPN studio said it, they said it was a a, a tale of Belgium struggling to defend their lead for for a, a big half of this game. Yeah, the, the the game definitely needed that that goal in the, in the first half, but I I still didn't feel like Portugal at the at the at the moment that goal go, goes in, I think okay, Fernando Santos has got to go for this here in terms of just opening up his side, being a bit more expansive. They've got Portugal have the players to do that, and and yet that didn't really happen until the 60th minute when Bruno Fernandes comes on and Yao Felix comes on. And and then even still, you know, it just felt like their approach was was lacking a lot of guile. There wasn't much, um, there wasn't much nuance to their performance. I felt, you know, but I I did I did um, looking at the other side of things. I I liked this performance from Belgium. I think better than you, the three of you did. Um, and maybe this is a bit of a proper football man opinion. But I just think that the the things that they faced. Um, against a, a good team in Portugal, you know, the defending European champions. So we're talking about a high-caliber opposi- opposition. They didn't play well. Kevin De Bruyne, their best player, goes off injured at the start of the second half. Eden Hazard goes off injured later in the second half. Um, and they're sloppy in possession, and they're not at it, and yet they still get a win. And I just, I just feel like it was very, and I'm not the only one to have made this observation, it was very France 2018 for me. Mm. And, I, and I just feel like that is, in a weird sort of way, that to me represents a, a sort of progression for Belgium. Because until now, it's felt like, not just in this tournament, but for me, it's felt like they need to play well to win matches. And they play, they play well a lot of the time. But they didn't, this was a poor performance, generally speaking, today. And yet they still got the job done. And I know it's one of those things that if, Ruben Diaz, you know, his header is, is a yard or two either side of uh, of Courtois, it's a goal, or if Guerrero's shot goes in rather than hitting the post, or Diego Jota takes one of those chances, then the, the script's completely flipped and you're talking about Belgium once again, you know, screwing it up in a major tournament, not taking their opportunities. But that, that these are the margins in major tournaments and, and it really feels, I feel better about their major tournament chances, their Euros chances after this game than before uh, before the game. And I know that obviously they're into the quarterfinals now, that's maybe natural, but just in terms of how they're shaping up, I, I like I like them to go far at this tournament now. And I'm not sure that was the case before this. Graham, I think the the main reason why I'm like maybe four percent more down on Belgium than you might be <laughs> uh, is is and I'm not saying this is fair but it is the last thing that is in my head from this game is Yannick Carrasco in that 3v2 giving the ball away when he absolutely doesn't need to and he gets ripped apart by his teammates for it when Portugal go back the other way and do get a, a semi chance not even a full chance I would say but it's just they do give up that opportunity and when it's a team seeing the game out and they're playing as this collective defensive unit and yeah it's not pretty but they're getting the job done. I think I'm more with you, but that one individual moment to me 
and the kind of breakdown there. If that's a, a, a team that knows exactly what they have to get done, Carrasco either hits that well wide towards the corner flag or carries it that way himself and sees the game out. And maybe I'm valuing that too much, but it was just sort of that individual moment that Portugal still hit the post. Portugal still gets some good chances. I I can't tell if that is Belgium finally figuring some things out and putting together a, a cohesive collective performance, or if that is them riding their luck and Portugal having some individuals not be at the level they needed to be on the day. Taylor, that's why I love you. You're a precise man, just 4% down, not, not the rounded yeah. out five there. I like that <laughs> nah, very much. It's too easy. And that would seem like I was making that number up. 4% seems real. Well, we know 97.7% of statistics are all made up on the spot, Taylor. So um, <laughs> there you have it. Um, I think you were mentioning earlier, Taylor, about Kevin De Bruyne and Lukaku uh-huh. and how they were being used in defensive and attacking phases in this game. If, if you want to expand on that, and maybe um, maybe we could talk about um, KDB and if he's, if he's missing for the next one. I would love to, except that I don't think that was me, unless was I me. was talking without kind of <laughs> realizing it, which has happened before. I feel like that was either Graham or Joe. Jeff? Yeah, that, was it that one was me. Yeah, that was me. Okay, it, it was some interesting positioning from uh, Roberto Martinez in this game. Something that we uh, we've seen before, but I don't. I'm not sure we saw it this regimented before. So Lukaku is this number nine. He's he's strong. He's quick. He's really good in in terms of his movement. Very dangerous in the box. And De Bruyne is this more playmakery type. But for Martinez, sometimes he'll swap their natural roles and he'll put De Bruyne as the nine and Lukaku off to the side. And we saw that when Belgium defended in this game. And we were texting a bit about this in our in our WhatsApp group chat. And kind of what, what the conclusion that we came to was is you shift Lukaku over to that right side defensively. You have De Bruyne at the nine for maybe two reasons. The first reason being De Bruyne is a little bit more capable in terms of his pressing. He's a little bit more active. He's, he's a little quicker in his short movements. And so if you have him as the nine, he can screen the opposing midfielders. He can step to pressure the center backs if you're Portugal. So I, I think that made sense. And Lukaku, you can hide a little bit more defensively because he doesn't make as many of those short pressing runs defensively. But then from an offensive perspective, you put Lukaku on that right side because he's so dangerous in that right half space. He's so dangerous, isolated against a central defender or against a fullback. He, he's just so hard to bring down if you're the opposing team. And he's incredibly fast when he's moving towards goal. And he reads the game really well in those counterattacking moments. So it, it was kind of a double-sided coin here, as all coins tend to be, from Roberto Martinez. But it's funny because I actually don't think any of that mattered one bit in this game. It was a great idea, but Belgium got out in transition. They didn't get out in transition very much at all in this this game for a couple different reasons. They were back defending deep. I, I don't think they were super precise in getting out in the first place. And then Portugal, very good with their tactical fouling, which was sometimes called fouls and sometimes not. But either way, it slowed those Belgium attacks down and it made it difficult for them to get out into space quickly, which I really do think is their best attacking method. It's not their possession play. It's their attacking transition play. But we didn't really see a whole lot of that in this game. And it's going to have to be better against Italy. Yeah, Joe, I would, I would agree with all that. And I would say that like their, that kind of attacking transition play is their strongest suit. And I would say their second strongest suit would be just after that first attack maybe breaks down. Cause in this game, I would argue that goal comes from, it's sort of like a, a hectic partial clearance from Portugal yeah. after Belgium have been attacking. And I think it goes to Mounier, I believe it is, who squares mm-hmm. to uh, Torgan Hazard to hit. And there were shades there for me of the Kevin de Bruyne goal against Denmark that gave Belgium the win, where it's that ball that goes across. You're playing against a very defensive team who are trying to sit in, trying not to give up any opportunities. And the way to maybe get one is to pull them to one side, quickly shift it to other to the other, ideally to a late arriving runner who is open, who hasn't been spotted that's what happens for the goal against Denmark that's what happens here and it's why I think Torgan Hazard is is trying to hit that one as quickly as he can while still carrying the ball forward at full full speed takes a couple touches to maybe make the situation even that much more dire for Portugal and then he hits that shot and it is such a good shot Ian Dark was uh, criticizing Rui Patricio for it and maybe he could have done better but to me if you're watching it from the reverse angle when that ball is first struck and the way it swerves initially you can see Rui Patricio 
thinking, okay, I know where this ball is going. And he does that little hop that goalkeepers do to then take that next big jump. And as he gets his feet set is when he realizes, I think, that the swerve is going back the other way. But at that point, his momentum is sort of set that he has to really then move the other way and push himself back off. And that's why he doesn't get the full extension and get that hand to it. So it's just the importance of hitting that ball the way Hazard does with the pace he does and the swerve he does. If he takes another touch or maybe even if he hits it a, a, a touch sooner, I think that ball gets saved, but because of the disguise on it, but also the like rapidity of the movement, I think that's where the opening comes, and that's where the goal comes from. And a lovely goal it was too, Tate. Yeah. Um, Graham, with, with the Portugal performance here, we've touched on it a little bit and how they changed things up, and, and, and Joe certainly mentioned their more physical style of play. It did seem like the second half they ramped that up a little bit, uh, and I think it was it was was it a case of okay, we've thrown the kitchen sink at them, now let's just try and hack them a little bit to try and get a result here. <laughs> I mean, there's a classic Pepe moment in this match, which I know oh, from yeah. an, atta- an attacking sense uh, didn't offer much, but for our entertainment, it certainly uh, offered a lot. Um, it was a look he... on his face, wasn't it? It was like, what did I do? Well, after he'd just <laughs> <laughs> gone through someone. <laughs> I, th- I think someone... Um, tweeted me saying that Pepe has had a, a long uh, career of trying to stop others from having a long career, uh, which <laughs> was a, a good way of putting it. But yeah, they, they were... They, I Obviously, I expected a lot more of, of Portugal. Maybe actually, given their performances of the, in, in this tournament, I didn't. But before the tournament, I, I expected more of them. But just looking through the... I'm just looking through the, the, the players that played today. And as much as Santos does deserve criticism for the way that he kind of stuck... In 2016, he, he, he went with a conservative style because he needed to mask a lot of deficiencies in that team. And you look at that 2016 team and it's nowhere near as strong individually as, as this team is. So he deserves criticism for, for not really adapting. I know, he, I know he adapted a little bit, but not adapting that much from 2016 when he's got a lot more to work with in this squad. But I just looked through... The, the number of players in this team who just didn't perform individually at this tournament. Diogo Jota had a bad tournament. Uh, Bernardo Silva had a meh tournament, you would say. Yao Felix had a bad tournament. Bruno Fernandes had a bad tournament. I personally felt Ruben Diaz uh, didn't have a good tournament, especially compared to how he'd been playing in, in the Premier League. I think Rui Preciso had a okay tournament, but could have done better. So when you have that number of individual performers, performers who just don't, turn up, I think it's going to be difficult. It felt like Portugal had a lot of players out of form. And really, you would say maybe only Renato Sanchez and Ronaldo were maybe the only players who really looked at it at this tournament. Renato Sanchez, of course, is the European Championships uh, expert. He does tend to turn up at this tournament. But something else we were speaking about off air, Jens Taylor, I think you made this point, was uh, the issue of fatigue in this tournament. We did know mm-hmm. it was going to loom over Euro 2020. Are the Portuguese sort of poster boys for that fatigue? And certainly when you look at Bruno Fernandes or Bruno Fernandes, as uh, Derek would have us say. Yeah, I think this whole game maybe is because you do have Hazard going off and you do have Kevin De Bruyne with another injury. So maybe that's it on the Belgium side. But yeah, then for Portugal, like I don't think this is just my sort of fandom and love for him at the Man United level coming to play. But Bruno Fernandes has played between 70 and like 85 games. I saw varying numbers on Twitter. Again, stats could be made up. Uh, but like in the last 12 years, that or 12 years, 12 months, that is a lot of games years. played. And, and so it's less so 12 years, but it is in 12 months. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so for him to then come in and to be expected to do sort of the same role. And at Manchester United, it's so much running. It's so much mental work. It's so much fatigue in the game that like, I just, I, I feel for him. And, but there are still then moments that I think, um, to go the opposite way, that it's such a tiny little thing, but again, it stood out to me that I put it in my notes. In the 91st minute, there's a ball rolling out of bounds that Rafael Guerrero sort of has no business getting to because of how much he also has played. And he not only gets to it, but he sort of does the roulette turn, stops it on the line, and is able to then like get his feet set and pass the ball. And it just stood out to me because I have sort of been in that situation late in a game when you're trying to chase that loose, loose ball down. And I, a not world-class player, have like many times dribbled it straight out of bounds or fallen over trying to keep it in because the legs just don't work the way you want them to. And so it's a credit to him, Rafael Guerrero, and that level of fitness. But I think for a lot of other players in this game, it was the opposite story. It was just heavy legs. They weren't at 
100% or even 95% capability, but that little difference, if it's 92 instead of 100, we're going back to made-up statistics again, uh, <laughs> that, it just, it, that is the difference. It, it is such a thing, and it's such an intangible thing, because if you're an athlete and you expect to be able to get on the end of a ball, if you're a player who's reliant on your speed, and you know that normally I'm getting to this ball before it rolls out of bounds, and then you don't, it, it, it's a strange moment and it takes a little bit of recalibration to think, is that, am I slowing down? Am I fatigued? Am I not good enough? Anymore? Like it, it has an impact. And I think that these players are trying to do the things they would be doing at a hundred percent fitness. But if you're doing it at 80, 85, 90%, that little difference shows that little lack of control shows. And if other teams are there to exploit it, then I think it shows all the more. It does indeed. Well, Belgium and the Czechs are through to the quarterfinals. And when we come back after this break, we'll be talking about two more teams, four more teams, in fact, who'll be trying to get through to that stage in tomorrow's matchups. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking about Monday's slate of games in the round of 16. We've got Croatia taking on Spain in Copenhagen. We also have France against Switzerland in Bucharest. Where else? Why don't we start off, gents, with a little chat about Croatia against Spain. Graham, I'll come to you first. Uh, do you regard this as a good matchup? Is, is this Croatia team uh, more improved? Will they keep improving? Is this a battle of the midfields, perhaps, this game? Yep, that's what I was going to say. This game is going to be, I think, pretty much decided on who controls the the centre of the pitch because that is the strength of of both of these sides. Um, you could say actually the weakness of both of these side is, sides is, is pretty similar as well. And that Spain and Croatia, um, even though Croatia did score three against Scotland, but uh, we won't go to in in depth about that one. But special. they have struggled. They have struggled for goals at this tournament, and Spain similarly. So even though they also uh, in their final group game kind of kind of found something in attack. But I think from the, the the Spanish perspective, I'm going to be interested in the in the team selection from Luis Enrique. He made a number of changes, I think four changes for that final group game against Slovakia. Um, obviously had a, the desired effect because they won 5-0. How much was of that was down to Slovakia being garbage? Uh, I guess we will find <laughs> out. I, I think of the changes that were made, that the ones that will stick will likely be, I think, Sergio Busquets in the centre of midfield. We've spoken previously about Luis Enrique, how he, he actually tends to prefer the physicality of Rodri in that role, but I, I don't think you can ignore how well Busquets played against Slovakia and how things just seemed a lot more balanced with him in the centre of the pitch. So I expect he will start, I think, as Piliqueta will probably start at right back um, over Marcus Lorente. 
Um, the two ones, the two that are interesting is Sarabia. I think it would be very harsh for him not to play this game, given that he, you know, scored, I think he scored one and got an assist against Slovakia. So I'm leaning towards that he will start this game. I think Eric Garcia, though, might come out and Pau Torres might come in in, in, in central defence. That seems to be what the Spanish press are saying. Um, and that might be, well, this, this is the thing that, that might have been to combat the, the pace that Croatia have and they can have an attack through the likes of Ivan Perisic. I know it's a, it's a slightly, it's, um, a, a different side of the pitch. Perisic tends to play on the left, but he is actually out, um, of this match after testing positive for COVID. So that's yep. not going to help Croatia in an attacking sense. So I, I'm interested to see what, um, Dalic does to switch things up because he's such an an important part of the way that they play. So I'm not entirely sure how they're going to get out and, and harm Spain, to be honest, without him. Joe, what do you think about that? What do you think Croatia are going to do here? There's probably going to be a 4-3-3, right? And as, as Graham mentioned, no Perisic there. What, how do you think they're going to uh, approach this? It'll be either a 4-3-3, like you're saying, Ryan, or a 4-2-3-1. I, I guess we'll see Brozovic in midfield again for this game just to provide some defensive metal in that space. Graham already talked about how this is going to be midfield versus midfield, right? I, I think Croatia are going to spend a lot of this game defending because Spain have proven that they are very capable of controlling the ball and using it in certain instances to create goal-scoring opportunities, that game against Poland really being the big exception where I don't think they created a ton of quality chances until later on in that game and the expected goals from that flattered them a little bit. But I really just think Spain are going to run Croatia down. I think Spain are going to control this game pretty much from start to finish and put in a pretty comprehensive winning performance. Croatia without Perisic, as we've already talked about, they they lack a lot of attacking quality. They don't have many players who I think if I'm Spain, I'm worried about on the counter. And then in possession, both of these teams like to hold the ball, but Spain is just a better Croatia at doing that. They're more effective. They've created better chances in this tournament. It's hard for me, and I'm not saying this all couldn't be wrong because it's anybody's game at this point, but it, it is much easier for me to envision Spain running this game than almost any other outcome. Taylor, probably a, a decent bet that Spain are going to have a decent amount of possession in this one. Do you think they'll convert that into meaningful chances and goals? I do. I, I, I do think so. I think the Ivan Perisic loss is, is a very, very big one for all the reasons we've already talked about. I would also add that he is six one and deceptively good in the air, so is another aerial threat sometimes for Croatia. But the big one would just be the veteran wisdom combined with he still has got some speed to be able to hit you on the break and sort of combining with Luka Modric and then playing it further forward. I feel like that could have been a threat that Spain had to worry about and now they won't as much. So I'm with Joe that I think it's going to be Croatia trying to have plans A, B, C, D, E, F, and G all the way down to deal with whatever Spain throw at them. But then if they can't alleviate that pressure via counterattacks or consistent attacking threats, I don't know how they hang on for the entirety of the game. That said, we would expect Spain to go with that high line, which can be exposed if they get frustrated, if they get fatigued. So if this game is nil-nil at halftime, I think Croatia is probably happier. And then we have the will they be more Italy or will they be more the Netherlands uh, like approach to the second half for Spain of will that pressure mount and will they find a way through and alleviate the pressure or will it build and build and they'll have a big mistake and that leads to a big loss. I think... We'll kind of know some things based on where we are at halftime, which is not saying that much because that's sort of how the game works. When you're halfway through, you know some things. But I think Joe is absolutely right that it's going to be a lot of Spain possession, a lot of passes completed. Uh, If you're a betting person, I would take the over on passes completed for Spain. Not a bad punt there, Tay-Tay Rockwell. Croatia against Spain is the 12 Eastern kickoff on Monday. The 3 p.m. Eastern kickoff is France against Switzerland. Uh, uh, Graham, what are you thinking about this one from maybe from a French perspective? We're going to see Big Benz and Mbappé up front with Griezmann behind. Uh, any surprises? Maybe, I don't know, uh, ooh, fullbacks? I'm trying to think where they might change things up. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the fullback position, particularly the left-sided fullback, is, is going to be interesting because Lucas Hernandez is, is, a, is a major doubt for this match and Luca Dina is also, I, I think he's either a doubt or he's completely out of this match through injury. So it looks like they're going to have to um, play uh, Leo Dubois, I think is how you, how you say that, plays for um, Leon, um, and that's not a normal position for him. So I, I, I'm interested to see if, if how that works. Other than that, it's going to be pretty much the the same as always for France, I think. Um, Pogba's been excellent in this tournament as a sort of footballing quarterback, playing those passes for, for Benzema and, and Mbappe. 
in attack and that's going to be key to the match for Switzerland is, is just finding a way to close up that space and not allowing themselves to be exposed and and and, and behind um and and from the Swiss side of things as well I, I think it's going to be pretty much more of the same from Switzerland I don't I don't expect massive changes from them I think the the the, the likelihood is that they'll probably start in a back three with uh, Mbabu and, and Zuber as, as the wing backs that'll be where they they find a bit of width and then Zerdan Shakiri for a little bit of uh, a little bit of stardust to make something happen as he tends to do at a major tournament yeah, France losing both their, their left-backs in that last game. So Leo Dubois, Dubois from Lyon uh, coming in there. That'll be uh, some, some poeticness there for the French. Very <laughs> nice indeed. Uh, Joe, your thoughts on France? I think Was it you? I'm confusing things you've said today, but did you say you thought France might creep their way through this tournament with their uh, thrilling Deschamps style? I, I probably have said that. I'm, I'm guessing others in this panel have said it as well. France don't, <laughs> France don't really thrill. Do they? They have the players to do it. Pogba thrills, right? Mbappe thrills. Benzema thrills. But France don't thrill. They don't come out here and play through you and, and possess and, and do all that stuff that we like to watch. They're pretty tactically conservative, right? They're like Portugal. Really, they're like Belgium in a lot of ways as well. And they're like England. A lot of the big teams choose to be a little bit more conservative in how they approach games. And that's that's fine. And I think for France, it's especially fine in this game coming up against a Swiss team that likes to use the ball and is willing to step forward and play. Switzerland tried to go toe-to-toe with Italy, and they lost that game. France and Italy are very different teams. Tactically, France is far less open. But I think Switzerland will try to step forward, use the ball to break through France's 4-4-2 block. And I, I don't anticipate them having nearly as much success doing that as they did, say, in their last group stage game against Turkey. France is much more compact. They're better at closing down the ball. They'll leave far fewer gaps far fewer gaps than Turkey did in their defensive shape. And they're much more dangerous in transition. And that's kind of the general pattern that I see occurring in this game. Switzerland attacking in either a, a 3-4-1-2 or they used a four at the back shape really with Zuber as a left-sided midfielder in their last group stage game against Turkey. But I, I picture Switzerland attacking and, and using the ball France absorbing pressure, breaking out in transition. If you play any sort of high line against Mbappe, you better be careful. Like, really, really careful. That could be a big problem for Switzerland tomorrow as they do try to possess and break through France. I also think there's a possibility, I think Deschamps has spoken about this before, that we might see France change things up to a back three, which which would be a big shift for them. But I would think with some of the injuries we've already talked about, and then I think Jules Koundé has also had an injury and is a doubt, and maybe we end up getting Hernandez and Koundé, maybe we get their sort of ideal lineup, but I think we also essentially could have a lot of late scratches and a lot of fitness issues, and so maybe uh, France do go with a different look. But either way, I think it's going to be a really, really fun game because the Swiss have proven themselves capable of being very stodgy, but then also being very fun uh, to watch. And Jordan Shakiri drifting around, how France are able to mark him or how they try to mark him out of the game while still having numbers centrally and finding opportunities to play in Kylian Mbappe. I just think there's going to be lots of moving parts to this game, and it's going to be another one where how teams make little adjustments to negate what the other is doing while simultaneously being able to to still do what they want to do, that will tell the story of the game. If we're betting on Spain pass completion, Tay-Tay, could we also bet on this game being a bit more interesting than the Spain-Croatia game? So it seems like this one's got the ingredients to be a bit more edge of the seat, potentially. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's there's still the the like X factor components of like Greta Chaka at any time could get uh, a yellow or a red card uh, for any number of things, and you could still have those sort of those clashes those physical moments but then I think yeah you you also have teams that are capable of playing on the break capable of being defensive on occasion I think both teams can possess in the attack and move the ball quickly and have shown an ability to play out of the press if they need to so I I think this will be an exciting game I don't even think this is like a reverse jinx or it is going to end up being nil-nil throughout it it has the potential in my mind to be one of those strange games where even if it is nil-nil I think it could still be pretty captivating from start to finish Indeed. So that's France against Switzerland and Croatia against Spain on Monday, all of whom will be competing to lose against England in the final on July 11th. So that's about wrapping up our podcast for today, gents. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your time, sir. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, my friend. Graham Rothman, appreciate you. <laughs> thank you, Ryan. Uh, uh, it was good, good fun, as always. <laughs> 
What are his Graham was so uncomfortable right there. So uncomfortable. I'm going to be really open and tell Graham how much I appreciate him every day. Please do. Let, let's just all tell Graham nice things about stuff and watch him struggle to, to deal with it. I'll keep quiet, Joseph, but I'll shake your hand I if I'm ever in Scotland, Graham. <laughs> Ryan, I appreciate you as well. And listeners, of course, we appreciate you. We'll see you next time. Bye!